0: Turn, if you would, to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. Last week we saw at the center of Acts the suffering of the kingdom that we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. This week we see a different kind of tribulation and a kind with which we are perhaps more familiar. That is the tribulation of church conflict, theological arguments. Some people say it's one way, Others say it's a different way. And they duke it out with the local church as their battlefield. And the church splits oftentimes. And those who agree with one thing go one way, and those who agree with something else go the other way. And Luke is not afraid of that. As we said last week, suffering is not evidence that Jesus has stopped reigning. And church conflict is also not evidence that Jesus has stopped reigning. So let's read the, this summary of what happened at the Jerusalem council. Acts chapter 15. Certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed, rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them, and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. When there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. After they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name, and with this the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, after this I will return and we will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things from eternity. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Thus it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, Leading men among the brethren, they wrote this letter by them. And then the text of the letter, which essentially contains a formal write up of James's proposal. Let's pray. Father in heaven, theological debate is a scary topic. It appears to have wreaked havoc in your church over the last many centuries. Father, we pray that you would help us as we look at Luke's account of this council today to see particularly your solution to this problem, the gathering of the elders in council to make a decision according to the will of God. We ask that you would help us to imitate this. We pray that you would give us unity and peace. Help us now to hear your word and to heed your word. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. So, there was a problem. A theological problem. The theological problem was that of the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's not how it was phrased, of course. There was no such thing as the New Testament in the days when the events narrated in Acts 15 took place. Probably no book of the New Testament had been written at this point. But nonetheless, the question of how Jesus relates to Moses, how the New Testament and the Old Testament fit together, was the question that arose here in Acts 15. It's a big question, and it's a question that continues to dog the church right down to the present moment. Luke doesn't avoid the question, doesn't pretend that the early church knew exactly how to read and handle the Old Testament. Instead, he says, this became a major issue. This threatened to divide the church. But here's how we handled it. So over the next two weeks, we'll look uh, more particularly at the content, the official decision on the question. What I want to look at today is not content, but process. When a question of this magnitude arises, what do you do? How do you take steps to resolve the question? So the answer is important. The answer to this particular question is very important, and we'll look at it over the next two weeks. But today, we're going to look at how do you begin to find an answer what method do you use who do you involve what people what places what texts how do you come to a resolution on these questions and the answer that Luke gives is get the elders together you call the elders together in a council and they will assist you they are the ones that Christ has put in the church to make his rule happen. They are the ones who can show you what the answer is. So this particular issue begins this way, verse 1. Certain men came down from Judea to Antioch in Syria, where we left Paul and Barnabas at the end of the last chapter. They came down from Judea. We would say they went up from Judea because it's 335 miles from Jerusalem north to Syria and Antioch. But because Jerusalem is on the top of a hill, you always come down from Jerusalem to go anywhere, north, south, east, or west. Now, these teachers came down from Jerusalem and started teaching circumcision. Now Luke emphasizes that this teaching came in from outside, Sometimes locals can come up with a terrible idea on their own. Oftentimes, though, terrible ideas in the church originated somewhere else and are imported by uh, well-intentioned volunteers such as these ones. Luke doesn't tell us who they are, were there big names among them, were there small names, were they nobodies. Who they are doesn't matter. What matters is the content of what they taught. And they present their doctrine very clearly. Now, this is Luke summarizing. Typically, heretics will not present their doctrine this clearly. One thing you cannot get a heretic to do is state a relationship between his teaching and historic Christian teaching. The heretic will always insist, my teaching is historic Christian teaching. The doctrine that I'm trying to get across is just what the church has always believed. And that, of course, is what these heretics said. Unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. Now, we're going to give a lot of attention today to how Luke shapes the narrative. Luke shapes the narrative in such a way that these false teachers get to say just two things. They speak here, and they speak in verse 5. Otherwise, they're silent. And certainly, they're not Luke doesn't give us any of the speeches they give in favor of their own position. He only gives us the summary of their view, which is, you have to become a Jew in order to be saved. Now, where would they have gotten this? The answer, obviously, is the Old Testament, which gives rules on how to be a Jew. And says, if you want to be part of the people of God, you have to be circumcised. It says that in Genesis 15 in Genesis 17 and Exodus 13. Those three chapters, basically the whole chapter is given over to explaining here is why you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. So Luke doesn't take the time to cite Genesis 13 or Genesis 15 and 17 Exodus 13. He doesn't give us the speeches of these false teachers. He simply gives us their main point. If you want to be a Christian, you have to be a Jew. You have to be circumcised. Now this basic idea has come back again and again and again within the church. Now the New Testament is very clear about circumcision. It's hard to find a Christian who says you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. But many, many other things from the the first two-thirds of the Bible, crop up repeatedly in church history. Ideas like the following. Priesthood with sacrifices. Church is not a church unless it has priests who offer sacrifices. (laughs) Never mind that the New Testament never once describes Christian ministry in priestly terms. Okay, it does once. Romans 15, Paul says... I am being poured out like a drink offering and making a sacrifice of the Gentiles, basically. Now, that's obviously a metaphor when he says that. But he doesn't say, my main task is to go around offering sacrifices to God. He never says that. Nobody in the New Testament ever says that. But there are whole churches. In fact, the two largest communions in the world, of course, the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church. Both are built on the foundational idea of priesthood and sacrifice. And then the third largest denomination, the Anglican Church, is built on the same thing. Priesthood and, in some quarters of Anglicanism, sacrifice. So, that's an Old Testament idea that continues in large swaths of the Church to enjoy a wide following. Here's another one. Food laws Uh, are very kind landlords here in this building. Seventh-day Adventists, there are many people in that communion who press vegetarianism as a sort of supplement to the gospel. And who especially would say, no pork, the Bible is clear, no pork. Pork is very bad for your health. And some of you have perhaps seen the videos Seventh-day Adventists produce trying to make you think pork is gross It's another instance of this same thing that Luke is dealing with in Acts 15. We get an Old Testament idea and we import it wholesale into the New Testament. Or this one. There's some sort of ethnic component to the Gospel. Now that's clearly marked throughout the Old Testament. God calls one man, Abraham. And then He calls certain individuals from Abraham's family. And we have Abraham the Hebrew, and then the entire rest of the Old Testament is all about the adventures and misfortunes of the Hebrews, the descendants of Abraham, a single family, a single ethnicity that by the end of the Old Testament are referred to as Judeans, which is then shortened into just Jews. That idea that there is some kind of ethnic component to how God works continues to be alive and well in various sectors of the church. Whether, of course, in our country, there's the whole white-black paradigm. Some say the white people are it. God favors them. Others say the black people are it. God favors them. Various countries, you know, British Israel, uh, various countries have claimed the ten lost tribes of Israel migrated to us and became us. That's a foundational idea in our own homegrown heresy here in the United States, Mormonism. The Book of Mormon relates how some of the Ten Lost Tribes sailed to the New World in the 600s BC and essentially became the Native Americans. So this idea that there's an ethnic component to the Gospel continues to arise and haunt the Church. There's the idea further that one's nation is a chosen nation. The, The Old Testament specifically uses that language you are a chosen nation. God chose Israel from all the peoples of the earth, Deuteronomy says. And lots of people have decided that their nation is that chosen nation, including of course many people within our own uh, our own nation. And I've had these conversations, I'm sure you have too, people coming to you and saying, "Why is the United States not Mentioned in the Bible. We're so important. Why aren't we there? That's this same thing that happened in Acts 15, verse 1. Certain people were reading the Bible, which they should have been doing, and they read Chosen Nation. And they said, Ooh, my nation. I'm an Ethiopian. I'm a Chinaman. I'm I live in the Maldives, right? What, whatever your nation is, you can get the idea that it is, in some important sense, the successor to Old Testament Israel and is God's chosen nation for doing something majestic in the earth. And Of course, uh, we Americans have fed those delusions of grandeur for quite some time now. We tell Americans that no... European power maintained an actual embassy in Washington, D.C. until 1892. And we don't say, oh, maybe we aren't as important as we thought. We say, what's wrong with the European powers? Or how about this one? That the laws, gave for Isra- laws God gave for Israel's life in the land form a complete law code for our own nation's life in its land. We can throw out the United States Code and the penal statutes of the state of Wyoming and we can bring in the book of Numbers and the book of Exodus. They contain all the laws anybody could ever need. Variations on these ideas continue to arise and plague the church today. Sometimes a mix of them all. Often just one or two of the issues. Some of you have no doubt met the friends in the Hebrew Roots Movement, who will tell you the best way to be a Christian is to go back to Jewish practices. Keep the feast days. Speak Hebrew. Give your kids Hebrew names. Uh, Wear a head covering. Do things that modern Jews do. This is all of a piece, and that piece goes back to the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's a tricky complicated relationship. It's a big, thick book with a lot of things going on. And so, Luke is not wanting us to have a lot of sympathy for these people who say you have to become Jews in order to be saved. We need to respect Luke in that. We need to agree with him. That doesn't mean we should be rude to our Hebrew roots friends, or dismissive of our Roman Catholic friends, or tell them you guys are a bunch of boneheads, That's not a word, right, that comes up in the Jerusalem Council. But at the same time, though we acknowledge that there's a lot of ways that you can get the relationship between the Testaments wrong, we stand with Luke and we say, I'm sorry, but your arguments don't cut it. You're telling me that I need to go back to an Old Testament mindset with priesthood and sacrifices with food laws, with an ethnic component to the gospel, with a chosen nation, with God's laws for Israel's life in the land, and we have to say, I'm sorry, that that is not correct. It's just not. So, that was the issue that arose then, and it's an issue that's alive today. How much, what pieces of the Old Testament are obsolete, what expired when Israel was kicked out of the land in 70 A.D., and what continues to be relevant for us today. Obviously, Luke is not tackling the whole issue. He tackles instead just one piece of it. That's the issue, though, that arose. The granddaddy of them all, the kahuna, unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. If you're circumcised, you have to keep the whole law. If you let circumcision in the door, then you let in every last Old Testament practice, and at the end of the day, you are back to the Levitical system. Paul and Barnabas sniffed that out immediately. They didn't say, oh, maybe these guys have a point. Instead, verse 2, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them. Paul and Barnabas immediately started arguing with these people. No! No, you don't have to get rid of your foreskin to be a Christian. No, we reject the notion that there's an ethnic component to the gospel. No, we reject the idea of priesthood and sacrifice. No, we reject the idea that the penal laws of Rome can be thrown out and Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy can be swapped in. We reject those ideas, said Paul and Barnabas. And the people from Jerusalem would not let up. Wouldn't say, well, he is the Apostle Paul. Maybe he's right. right? The evidence of the New Testament is, seems to suggest that rather when Paul spoke, most people were like, that guy is a nut. Rather than kind of the quasi-reverence that we bestow upon him. Oh, he's Paul. He is the greatest genius the world has ever seen. But the men from Judea wouldn't give up, and of course, as I said, they're still with us. Still teaching, you have to grab this or that out of the Old Testament and put it into your Christian life, and then you'll see some real good results. Paul and Barnabas were not having it. And so Luke takes us to the granddaddy of the issues, circumcision. And his overall point, substantively, is if circumcision no longer applies, the rest of the Levitical system doesn't apply either. We don't need a temple. We don't need sacrifices. We don't need priests. We don't need Jewish holidays. We don't need an ethnic component to the gospel. We don't need to think that our nation is a chosen nation We don't need any of that because we don't need circumcision. There's a big argument about it in Antioch and quickly it becomes apparent that these people are not going to stop just because Paul and Barnabas and the other pastors in Antioch say, this is nuts. And so the Antioch church, they determine that Paul and Barnabas and certain others should go up to Jerusalem. There's a delegation to Jerusalem to solve this question. Now again, Jerusalem and Antioch are 335 miles apart. That's about the distance from here to Denver. It's not too bad in a car, but it's a long way on a donkey. The Antioch church wasn't bothered by that, nor were Paul and Barnabas. They said the well-being of the church is what's important here. We don't mind going 335 miles on foot if need be, in order to get this issue settled. So, how do you settle an issue like this? How do you settle a theological debate? The first thing you have to do is get the church involved. If you're having a theological argument with somebody, this has to come. If you're going to really get it settled, it has to come to the church. Which it does. The church says, here's how we'll settle this. We'll send delegates to Jerusalem, and we'll send them specifically to the apostles and elders about this question. So what's the goal? The goal is to get a binding decision. They're not sending them to the theology professors to get an opinion. They're not sending them to a study committee to look at the history of how relations have been handled between the Old Testament and the New Testament. They're going to the apostles and elders because they want an official statement, the church's settled opinion, this is the right way to believe on this question. They get the church involved, and then Paul and Barnabas are sent down, or sent up, as Luke has it, sent up the hill to Jerusalem. Being sent on their way by the church, they pass through Phoenicia and Samaria (coughs) Phoenicia, what we, of course, call Lebanon today. (coughs) They pass through that. They go through Samaria on the north end of Israel. And they make no bones about their position. They are controlling the narrative. They are describing the conversion of the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas are aware that this is a disputed issue. Do the Gentiles have to become Jews to be saved? And Paul and Barnabas are equally aggressive to say, no they don't, and the way they do this is through narrative. They repeat the story of the conversion of Sergius Paulus. They tell about the Lystrans and being offered sacrifices there. They tell about preaching in uh, Pisidian Antioch and the controversy with Bar-Jesus. They tell, in short, all these things that they personally had witnessed. And so Bar Jesus or Sergius Paulus was saved without being circumcised. And they tell story after story after story along those lines. And they're getting people emotionally invested against circumcision. They caused great joy to all the brethren. Now we tend to be a little skeptical of that. We're getting people emotionally invested. Isn't that a technique that only the bad guys use? That right, We would think of that as something the Judaizers are doing. The pro-circumcision party, they're playing on people's emotions. Paul and Barnabas, the good guys, they just present the biblical facts. But that's not what Luke says. Right? Luke, as we said, shapes the narrative. He doesn't let the pro-circumcision faction have a speech. He doesn't describe their arguments. He doesn't give their reasons. He doesn't let them talk to us. He silences them in the narrative. And he tells us how the entire church is joyful about the conversion of Gentiles without circumcision. People are emotionally invested in the right outcome, and this is a deliberate strategy on this part of Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas don't go through the churches and say, well, there's a disputed issue out there. Both sides have some good texts. We really need to respect all the players. They're all really trying to fear God and do the right thing. It's not how they presented it. Not how Luke presents it. Luke is downright bigoted in his narration in favor of the anti-circumcision party. What do we take away? That that's not wrong. Equal time is not God's idea. There isn't 66 books in the Bible from God and 66 more from Satan who gets to have his say. We just have the 66 from God. Well, so it is here. We have three speeches against circumcision and no speeches for circumcision. That's deliberate on Luke's part. So, in other words, when it comes to theological dispute, the way forward is not, at least not in every case, to balance the issue. Both sides have good points. Luke says the way forward is to pick the right side and show that the other side is wrong. Go with the right side. So they come to Jerusalem, they're received by the church, the apostles, the elders, and once again, they report on God's work. They tell their story again. So Luke has already told their story in the previous two chapters, and now verse 3, they tell their story. Verse 4, they tell their story. Verse 12, they tell their story. He lets us know three times that they, on their way to Jerusalem and in Jerusalem, repeat the stories from the first missionary journey to make it clear that God is at work, Gentiles are getting saved, and they're getting saved without becoming Jews. So, that's just all preparations for settling the issue. They raise the question, is circumcision necessary? They send a delegation, and that delegation makes every effort to control the narrative and enlists the emotions of God's people on the side of truth. And then, finally, they have a council. The apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. Verse 6. So, Luke tells us one more time what the Pharisaical position is. As we know, when you see the word Pharisee, that's a red flag. Oh, these people are in favor of it? Probably a terrible idea they say two things. The pharisaical position is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. They have to be circumcised. They have to approach God through the Levitical way. In other words, you have to be a Jew to be saved. The apostles and elders discussed this when there had been much debate, verse 7, Presbyterian's favorite verse, then Peter stands up and he says, Jews get saved in the same way as Gentiles. And the way he ends is beautiful. Why? Verse 10, Why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Now he has the Pharisees cornered with that one. If they say, No, no, the yoke is easy. It's easy to bear the yoke of the law. Then they've undercut themselves because they pride themselves on how they keep the law. So they can't stand up and say, keeping the law is no biggie. Anybody can do that. Because their whole sect is about how not just anybody can keep the law. But if they go the opposite way, if it is easy, or if they go the opposite way and say, oh, the law is hard to keep, then they're agreeing with Peter. And they don't want to do that either. So Peter gets them into the perfect logical bind, just like Jesus used to. Of Wait, self-righteousness makes no sense. If you're proud of your ability to keep the law, then you have to admit that the law is impossible to keep. And therefore, you're out in the cold. So Peter says that. Paul stands up and says, we saw Gentiles saved. James stands up. And he quotes from the prophets. He takes it back to Scripture. And he says, Amos says this, After this I will return and rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. Now, he wasn't kidding. The line of David had stopped ruling Judah over 600 years previously. 600 years. So, the last Plantagenet to sit on the throne of England, Richard III lost the kingdom in the year 1485. That was less than 600 years ago. Does anyone seriously expect that when the present queen dies, Prince Charles prepares to ascend the throne, that a Plantagenet will come out of nowhere and say, wait, I'm the real king of England. I'm a true descendant of Richard III. And then proceed to fight Prince Charles for it. Like That would be cool. <laughs> but that is not going to happen. The Plantagenets are long gone. But Amos says, David's line is not long gone. Yes, it's been off the throne for 600 years, but it's still around. The tabernacle of David, the dynasty of David, will be raised again. And the rest of Edom, said Amos, will seek the Lord. Edom has the same consonants as Adam. And so the Greek translators translated it not Edom, but Adam. The rest of Adam, the remnant of humanity, everyone else in the human race will come and take shelter in David's tent. That was prophesied by Amos 800 years ago. It's happening now. That's how James argues. And... That is what happened. Pagans have become Christians. They're taking shelter in David's tent, not by becoming Jews. They're still Edomites. They're still whatever ethnicity they were, whatever culture they were, but they are Gentiles who are called by God's name. That is the name Christian. James argues against circumcision. Paul argues against it. Peter argues against it. And James says, let's send this out in a letter. So they do, and we'll talk about the contents of that letter and the contents of James's proposal next time. But what is the lesson that Luke is talking about when it comes to process? Well, the first lesson is obviously Christ reigns over his church through councils. If you want the church... To make a decision on a disputed point, you have to get the elders together. They got the apostles and elders together in that day. We don't have any more apostles. So today we just gather the elders. And that's how Christ rules the church. Through the decisions of the elders gathered in council together. No biblical precedent for individual decision-making in the church. There's no diocesan bishop. There's no archbishop. There's nobody who stands alone and says, this is how it's going to be. It is a group decision, just like Luke is absolutely nuts on team ministry. Right at the beginning, Peter and John went up to the temple. They healed the man. And Peter does all the talking, and yet Luke doesn't ever let him say, Peter did this, Peter did that. Luke always says, Peter and John, Peter and John, Peter and John, Peter and John. And then we get to the next team. Who's that? Paul and, Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas. And then the next team, which we'll see in chapter 16. Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas. And so it is throughout the book of Acts. All ministry is team ministry. All eldership is team eldership. There is not elder in every church. There are elders in every church. There's only one objection to this, and that's that it's very impractical to get the team together to make a decision. It's a lot easier to make one guy the executive and have him make the decision. And so within a couple of hundred years, most churches had gotten rid of the team and erected a bishop who would make the decisions. Get one good guy and put him in charge. This team thing takes too much time. But that's not how the New Testament speaks of it get the elders together the church makes decisions by gathering elders the Levitical system no longer has religious power don't go sacrifice a bird to get your sins (coughs) forgiven and finally Christ reigns over Gentiles without making them Jews all of these lessons come out of the Jerusalem council but especially the lesson get a council together to settle disputes Of course, one of the biggest problems in the church since the era of the great schisms in the year 1000 is that there hasn't been such a gathering of elders. Various branches of the churches are so mad at each other that they will no longer all gather and accept one another as elders. Maybe a mega council could actually solve some of these disputes. But it appears destined not to be. Not in our lifetimes, but the Lord is ruling His church, and He does throw so on the small scale and on the large through the gathering of the elders. So that's how this issue was settled, and Luke seems to be saying this is how to settle issues. Let's pray, Father. We thank you for the elders you placed in our church, and thank you for the gathering of elders to make decisions. <laughs> that was witnessed already in the days of the Apostles. Father, we ask that You would help us to resist this Judaizing impulse to stand firm in the liberty with which Christ has freed us. Help us to say no to the idea of priesthood and sacrifice, to the idea of food laws, to the idea of an ethnic component or a national component to the Gospel, Help us, Father, to stand firm in the freedom that we have in Christ and submit not to the alleged good ideas of certain disreputable teachers who say, it's in the Old Testament, it's got to be still valid, but rather to the gatherings of elders who come together and seek your spirit and proclaim your word. Lord, we pray that you would help our church to submit to your rule. We thank you that Christ reigns even when the church can't agree. And we ask that you would help us to submit to the reign of Christ. And we do pray for the church to start to agree. And for the rule of Christ to be furthered and manifested in the unity of the church on earth. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.